and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next in the session. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 13 in the book. Dr. Smith. Chapter 13 is titled Adjustments, and adjustments reflecting our attunement to the patient in the room during the session. And you begin the chapter with a very interesting concept, which is, or interesting question, which is how much should a therapist talk during a session? Right, well, before getting into that, so I'd like to to just mention that this is the last podcast of the series on how to do therapy. And after this, we'll start the next section, which is about all the different kinds of problems that psychotherapy can help with. So in a way, this chapter really has to do with the adjustments, the, the things that you might vary to fit with your client, the things that might, that might vary from one person to another, and how they're going to affect the way the therapy unfolds. I started this out by mentioning that I think the idea of the the therapist being very quiet and not revealing anything, uh, abstinence and neutrality, really have a lot to do with kind of the style of the Victorian era when when Freud first came up with his ideas. And the the Victorians were very big on restraint, and people in the modern age are, are not so hot on on restraint as they were. The idea at the time was that if the therapist said nothing, then the therapist could be a completely objective observer and would not in any way have an effect on the client. Well, now we know that that doesn't really work that way, that being uh, withholding and and silent uh, is often very challenging and difficult for clients and not necessarily the objective either. So kind of setting aside that those old notions, we really come at this from the point of view of, of what's going to work best, what's going to do the best job. And so in particular, there are four good reasons for more therapist communication, for more talk. And then we'll talk about some of the reasons why therapists can be too talkative. First of all, you know, words are really great. Uh, language is articulate. It, it, does, it does a wonderful job of making things precisely clear. And what that does is that goes right into the, into the brain and lights up just those neurons that are, that are important at a given time. And so speech is a very, very important and flexible and powerful way for one human being to interact with another. And so, you know, I think withholding too much of that is really not going to help the therapy. And then there's one of the earliest ways that people get help is, is even infants and toddlers, when they have a problem, when, the, when a toddler falls down, it's going to look up and make eye contact with mom. And what happens is 
and a very, very important exchange of information. Because when mom smiles and says hi, that tells the toddler that this fall was nothing serious and, doesn't, and they don't need to worry about it. And in a similar way, when we talk with our clients, when we talk about our clients, that gives them a bigger perspective on their own experience. And sometimes it helps with mindfulness. It helps give the client a bigger perspective on what's going on. And that's often not only reassuring and calming, uh, but also very informative. And that takes me to the kind of the third reason for, for being generous with our talk is that part of therapy is constructing a new narrative. And it's one thing to, to find out that the way you've understood life was maybe based on, on something from a long time ago and not really so valid anymore. But it's even more important to have an alternative, to have a new version of one's life story and, and how, how things make meaning. And so I think that therapists can help clients to understand new ways of reacting and new ways of understanding things. Finally, when when we're talking about behavior change, which is often a part of psychotherapy, when we're talking about behavior change, then it's really helpful to have another person who's kind of your, uh, your cheerleader and, and whose expectations hold, hold one accountable. And so, except for some clients who don't like to be pushed or uncomfortable with that, I, I think that that's part of making sure that things keep on moving in a, in a positive way. The words are articulate. They bring about a certain mindfulness of the feelings that and emotions that we are experiencing uh, in the moment or that we experienced and that we brought into the session. And they assert a new version of reality where by being able to talk about the emotions and by having that be reflected during the session by the therapist it's a way of asserting a new truth that about the self in EMDR we call that ecological validity right mm -hmm. so so in terms of the ecosystem the psycho-emotional ecosystem when we have a new truth which supplants an old one we are actually creating we're updating uh, the, the ecology of our being, mm -hmm. which, which I think is, is an interesting term. And, and, and then by having a, a therapist who talks about, acti who is actively vocal and verbal in the session, it allows us then to actively discuss possibilities for behavioral change. Mm -hmm. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So those are the pros of more talk from the mm -hmm. therapist. What, what are the pros and cons of less talk? Yes, yeah, so, so being quiet is one of the things that we do, but it's important to realize that that is quite scary for people, especially early in therapy. So when a therapist is quiet, uh, that's actually more, more difficult and anxiety provoking for your client especially early in the, in the course of therapy, because people don't know what's, what spontaneous thoughts they're going to have and what's going to come out of their mouth. And they always imagine that you're, you're listening for something abnormal and shameful. And so it, it takes some reassurance and maybe some practice for a client to, 
get used to the idea of just spontaneously talking about whatever might come into their mind. So just to realize that that, that can be anxiety provoking. In an earlier chapter, you said that silence was the most open question of all. That's right. And a completely open question is scary because you don't know what you're going to think and what's going to come out. On the other hand, allowing your client to talk is a very positive thing. Uh, People really need to be understood. They feel a need for that and it helps them to feel more comfortable and to feel like you understand them. Uh, just to be to be aware of those uh, pros and cons. What about the liabilities of more talk? Well, certainly therapists can talk too much, and that tends to happen when the therapist is anxious or maybe motivated by something other than the than the client's needs at that at that point. So we certainly don't want to inhibit our client by imposing our own agenda or our own thoughts when it isn't necessary. The more we we talk, the more we show how much we don't understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a possible liability sometimes. Uh, And so when you you share some thought with your client, that may be a good way to evaluate whether you're on the right track or not, but it can also uh, cause a a break in in the sense of connection if you got it wrong or if you have something in your mind that's, that's maybe threatening to the client and they're, and they're going to react to that. But the main thing about talking too much is that it tends to send the message that you don't want to hear what the client has to say and that we don't, definitely don't want to do. Right, no. And yet, you know, some goals are furthered by speaking up. You mentioned that verbalization from the therapist might increase the patient's feeling of safety, which is definitely a goal. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So in, in the book, I listed six of them, and that's one. Um, uh, two is that it's part of that three-step dance that, that sometimes giving a little nudge when there seems to be something getting in the way of communication is one of the reasons for saying something. To clarify your own thinking, as I just mentioned, uh, sometimes helping clients to reframe things helps with their motivation as well as their understanding It gives them a feeling that there's hope and there's something that they can do. Words are actually one of the very best ways to activate deep and important feelings because a feeling is more than just the feeling itself, like anger or sadness or something like that. It has a content. It's angry about or sad because of. And when we articulate or we help our client to articulate those precise conditions that surround a feeling, then the feeling comes out much more, much more deeply. And, and that helps us with bringing things to light so that they can be processed or uh, finding something that needs maybe to be corrected or rethought or looked at in a different way. And the last thing I wanted to say about the value of talk is reshaping the client's narrative, is giving them a, a, new, a new narrative of life. And that can be do a lot of things. It gives hope. It gives a new way of approaching things. And we all think in terms of stories. So so this is a powerful way to give something positive to our client. And you also say that using language is uh, regulates emotional arousal. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. Sure. There's a lot of, a lot of talk these days about, uh, about, meditation and breathing and things like that, which have been found to help regulate 
the level of arousal because when it's too high, when people are too upset, they're not going to learn anything and not much change is going to take place. But actually the gold standard for regulating people's arousal goes back to the mom and the toddler. It's that soft voice of somebody who's not freaked out when you are that really helps to calm things down. And so that's the most traditional way that a therapist can, can help a client to regulate emotion when things are getting too, too heated up. So then in that sense, you're kind of talking about a, a counterbalance to the patient's emotional state. So that if a, if a client is hypo aroused and you would want to heighten his emotion or her emotions, what kind of words would you use? For instance, you list some in this chapter. Sure. And, and so some examples would be you want to use more uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, one syllable words. You know, wow, that one really hits you hard, didn't it? Uh, or, or, oh my gosh, he must have pissed you off. Those are, those are strong words that, that go directly to emotion, whereas there are other kinds of language that tend to lower the level of emotion. My, my, it seems as if you experienced some negative feeling there, or perhaps this is arousing some strong affect. You know, those, those are sort of indirect, more abstract words that tend to lower the emotional tone. Mm-hmm. In a way, is it that they objectify the feelings, that they, mm-hmm. they give some distance between mm-hmm. the client and the feelings that the client is having? Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, so and I think we do that just instinctively, but it's, but it's a good thing to be aware that that is a tool for, for helping out with either raising the, the arousal level or lowering it so that it stays within an optimal window. Yeah, and then and then you can be effective during the session. So so here with the question of how much talk to use, how much talk not to use, we kind of transition into how much support to provide. And you mentioned an unfortunate tradition in psychodynamic ther- therapy, which is a distinction between supportive and uncovering psychotherapy. What what is that? Well, in training programs it's often mentioned that there's such a thing as, as supportive therapy, which is technically means helping the client to strengthen their defenses as opposed to uncovering therapy which, in which you invite your client to let go of defenses and to allow themselves to be vulnerable. And why is that distinction uh, an unfortunate tradition? Well, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because, because what happens is that when when people have that dichotomy in their mind, then the supportive patients are are given lower value. They're they're not the fun ones. They're not the ones you really want to work with. And the clients feel it too. They feel that that they're lesser clients. And so I just don't think that's fair because I really do think that everybody gets a lot of support from therapy. Just having somebody who's solely interested in you to talk to is a very supportive thing. And it's more like parents when with your children, you support them when they have, when they're things that are above their ability. But if you continue to support them to do things that they already know how to do, then you're infantilizing them. Then you're, you're discouraging them from learning to do the things that they could do. And so we regulate that. And I think in therapy, it's a better concept is that we regulate the level of support to 
match what the client is capable of dealing with at a given time. And uh, we use words and tone of voice for support. Sometimes, sometimes there are concrete things, like if somebody doesn't know how to, how to navigate some system, and I happen to know that, I'm pretty likely to share that information and, and not leave my client out to, to figure it out for themselves uh, if they don't have a way of doing that. So I don't think, in my experience, and again, this goes back to that neutrality and abstinence from the old Victorian days, I really don't think that being supportive does anything to undermine the therapy unless you're providing support that the client doesn't really need. And then in that case, it has a negative effect. Right. You, you write also that patients will often prefer concrete supportive actions as opposed to empath empathic understanding. Uh, that's a really important point. Uh, so, so sometimes clients will want time, phone call between sessions, or concrete advice or things like that when they really don't need it, but they're looking for something they're, they're, they need something from the therapist that's sort of a token substitute for, for the caring that they're really feeling short of. But at the same time, what, what people really need the most is they need your empathic understanding. But for that to happen, the client is going to need to share deeper things that make them vulnerable. And so the point is that sometimes clients will avoid the vulnerability that's involved with really getting into their deeper feelings and instead will prefer to ask the therapist for something concrete, something more that, that's less challenging and that where the therapist is just, you know, giving some, um, some piece of advice or information or something like that, or, or some piece of time. And what the person really needs is to allow themselves to be vulnerable and to be understood. And, and that's our job. You know, our job is to, help people let us into their life. Right. What about authority? How much authority do we show or present in the session? In our culture, practitioners aren't given very much authority. In other cultures, in more community-oriented cultures, less individualistic cultures, I think that therapists are seen as, as much more authorities. When I, when I worked with Hispanic people in the South Bronx, uh, they saw the doctor much more in a, in a role of authority. And sometimes that can be a positive tool, but it can also have its liabilities because if you expect people to believe what you say or to follow your suggestions, they may not want to do that or they may do it and then show you that you were all wrong in the first place because there was some kind of a hidden agenda going there. And some people are just plain resistant if you express some kind of a, of a desire or a, or, a, or a wish for them. This comes up very much with people who have addictions. They tend to be very, very resistant to being told by anybody anything that they should do. And for that reason, the therapeutic technique of motivational interviewing was invented just for people who don't like to be told what to do. And it's a whole set of techniques that involve helping people to ask questions themselves and to f come to the answer on their own without being told. Other people don't mind being told. And, and so I think we want to gauge this 
according to the client. And we don't want to impose our authority when it's not going to help uh, or to withhold it when it actually can be useful. So as to avoid uh, making unnecessary mistakes, you list here a number of different types of client that you might encounter that would likely or not likely be welcoming of your authority. You say, for instance, that women and highly educated people tend to react better to being treated as equals. Yep. Would you agree with that? Probably. <laughs> I think so. Um, and, and, and some people, especially when, when the educational level may not be as high, are, are more used to uh, concrete instructions and expectations and may be more comfortable with that. I, I gave an example about the more educated person might be able to handle a question like, well, tell me about yourself. And, and somebody who's more comfortable with the concrete kind of thing, you might say instead, well, tell me what jobs have you had? And, and then you're, you're going to learn the same material either way. And you also say that when patients are resistant to the therapist's authority, it's best to roll with the resistance. Right. That's part of motivational interviewing, that, that if somebody doesn't like being told what to do, then, uh, then you certainly don't want to argue with them or try to impose your way. You're going to need to listen to their objections and either just plain let it, let it go and, and do a strategic uh, retreat or, or maybe focus on, on the meta-communication, on, on what the objection might be and, and help the person lead themselves to a realization that's more comfortable to, for them. Right. And so then you also state that changes made and based on the therapist's authority will eventually require that the patient take ownership. Yeah, that, that really comes from addiction work where people can start out recovery because, because they had to or because there were dire consequences if they didn't. In other words, external motivation. But if it's going to work in the long term, eventually it has to become their own. And, and that's true of things that if we might bring authority to something, eventually it's going to need to be owned by the, by the client. It's going to need to be their own thing. And what if the patient asks for authority in an unconscious effort to prove that the authority is wrong? That's a hidden agenda, isn't it? Right. I, I always remember a patient who was, was a very intelligent man, and he really, really was not interested in, in therapy. He really was interested in showing me that I was wrong. And eventually, eventually we we terminated and, and it didn't work out as a therapy because that agenda was just too strong and there was no way he was going to have that brought to his attention. So it remained, it remained unconscious, but very powerful. Then that, that really is a resistance to authority that you can't quite roll with, no matter how much motivational interviewing you may be doing. Exactly. That one just did not, did not get there. Yep. Mm. And then, Adapting to attachment style. Well, well, this makes me feel very kind of wistful and, and sad because, because there are a lot of people who have, especially the avoidant sort of attachment style or the disorganized uh, attachment style, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but who for no reason, of, uh, no reason that, that they had any choice about 
may have an attachment style that is not so easy for therapists to connect with. And those people are going to have a hard time with therapy and maybe not as good a result just because they, they have trouble relating, they have trouble connecting uh, with a therapist. And so I think that it's, it's important for us to recognize that not everybody is easy to get along with, not everybody has a natural ability to connect and make a therapist feel good, and yet they may very much need our help. And so this is an area where if you feel that your client doesn't naturally have those abilities, it, it's really incumbent on us to do our very best to try to adjust to that person's style in such a way that they can accept our help and can um, move toward a comfortable empathic connection. Right. So rather than take it personally, to simply ask ourselves, what is this person's attachment style? Mm -hmm. what am I seeing this isn't about me, but this is about an attachment style that started long ago. Right. Yeah. So the, the easiest ones are the people who have a, a secure attachment style because they just, you know, make a good connection and they regulate their emotions and no problem. And then there are the anxious, ambivalent sort of attachment where people are more actively anxious and worried about keeping the connection and feel more of a responsibility for maintaining a connection with their therapist. And therapists love those people. They're great. Um, because they make it easy for us, though eventually we want them to be more assertive and to pay more attention to their needs as opposed to uh, to our needs. But could you tell us a little bit about the ambivalence of the anxious ambivalent attachment style? Well, the, the ambivalence might be um, that, that the anxiety is there some of the time, but then there's also some anger if you're not there for them, if you're not paying attention to them. And so... That's where the ambivalence, I think, comes from. Uh, but the anxiety is, is it always uh, needing to have tokens of their, of their importance to you or some way of, of reassuring themselves that you're there and that they're important to you. Hmm. What about the avoidant attachment style? Well, well, those are the people who've learned not to need much attachment, not to need much, much connection with another person or, or even to act as if it's not important to them, sort of the, the rugged individualist who gets along by themselves and has a hard time allowing themselves to be dependent because the way that gets started is that as a very small child, uh, this is the person who just had negative experiences from being vulnerable and needy so these are people who learned not to allow themselves to show their vulnerability or their neediness and, and not to allow themselves to depend on somebody else because they've, they've been hurt in the process. And so helping them move more gradually towards allowing that and making a, making a connection is, is part of the therapy. And it may, it may take some time and some delicacy that way. And sometimes that's a person who can use something else like following procedures. Uh, that might be a person who's more comfortable with a, a CBT type therapy where there's, where there's homework and procedures and things that you're supposed to do as opposed to the human connectedness that more of a open-ended talk-oriented therapy might involve. Why is that? Because that's a way of getting your needs met without having to admit that you have them. Oh, simple as that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, yeah. 
<laughs> All right. What about disorganized attachment? So that's that's the last one that was uh, that was discovered after Bowlby's original work, and those were little kids who just couldn't figure out how attachment works. They couldn't figure out how to make a connection work because they were dealing with the parental environment that was inconsistent or um, or just couldn't be couldn't be figured out, and so they they kind of they need attachment but just are uncomfortable and don't know how to access it. And so there might be a randomness, a variability, um, kind of frustration. And, and this can be a very difficult person to, to work with because we want to figure out our client and figure out what's the formula for getting closer to this person. And maybe this is a person who doesn't know what the formula is either, and they don't know the formula for getting close to you. So, so there's, there's going to be a fair amount of experimentation and some stress that's, that's involved. And, and again, we're gonna to need to be extra sensitive and patient. Could you give us an example of what that would look like in the therapy room? Uh, yes, I do have an example. It was a woman who really just had a hard time navigating life. And she had a dad who, who was very much wanted her to succeed and really kind of believed in her and was always questioning her and, and, and grilling her and, and kind of pushing her in ways that made sense to him, but that didn't work for her. And, and so some sessions would be, would be very easy and productive and, and she'd be well connected. And then other sessions, she'd kind of freeze up and feel like I was uh, trying to lead her in some direction that wasn't, wasn't a good fit for her. And it was very hard in those sessions where the communication broke down, it was very, very hard to figure out how to get back on track and uncomfortable for her to talk about this because she wasn't allowed to criticize. Uh, that was part of the deal that you weren't supposed to complain or criticize. So it was hard to help her to put into words how this wasn't working for her. And yet she was obviously kind of frozen up and not really feeling comfortable and, and not able to to connect or participate. And then in that case, when you have a patient like that in front of you, how would you suggest organizing the attachment with her and kind of setting a tone to the relationship, the therapeutic relationship? Yeah. Well, and here's where the, the three-step dance comes in. And, and really, I think the only solution is to be able to meta-communicate. In other words, to talk about the communication process and how it's breaking down and to gently explore, you know, what did that feel like? And, and what was the thing that turned you off and, and got you to freeze up there and to use the therapy room as a kind of a laboratory where you have both sides willing to be honest about what's going on and compare notes. And then hopefully you can get back on the, on the right track and get things moving again. So moving on, you briefly mention internalizing versus externalizing mm -hmm. as coping styles. Yeah, that, that came from my work with, with addictions, uh, where you know, people with addictions tend to be more externalizing. In other words, they'll blame their environment uh, for their problems and not look within very much versus people who tend excessively maybe to question themselves and look inside. And if something goes wrong, their first impulse is to blame themselves for it. And so I think the 
the externalizers respond tend to respond better to a more prescriptive kind of therapeutic approach. You know, here's here's what to do. This is how it works, and and that kind of thing. Where the the people who internalize are going to be more comfortable with a, a quiet, exploratory look at their inner feelings and things like that. In in the work in working with PTSD, uh, studies have shown that those suffering from PTSD, the, that the men tend to find an external pathway of expression, that they. Uh, in, in, in expressing their PTSD, that it's often, so it is externalized in women, it's internalized, and mm-hmm. PTSD shows up as, as deep depression. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed anything like that? Or is this something you even want to talk about? Uh, sure, it's, it's a good question. Um, let me think about it. Um, And I guess in terms of pathology, have you noticed any particular or dominant coping style uh, attributed to the to the sexes? Uh, that's that's a good question. I guess with most of the women I've worked with, it seems like yes, supporting their sense of, of value and agency is really really an important part of the therapy and exploring the reasons for doubting oneself and helping the person be really, really crystal clear in their own mind that, that those self-doubts and self-loathing that happens sometimes is really a foreign body that's been lodged inside them and that, that they need to get rid of. I haven't had as much experience with, with male sufferers from PTSD, but some, and uh, it makes me think of, of one combat veteran and fairly early in the therapy, I suggested to him that, you know, sometime we're going to need to find some compassion for, to help you have some compassion for yourself. And he said, oh no, that'll be the day I'm not going there. <laughs> it was very clear that that was extremely threatening. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, the, de- the defense of, of this particular person, and of course his turns out that his his PTSD wasn't just based on wartime experience, but it started a long time before that when he was a kid and, and had traumatic experiences as a young person. But his defense was to be a tough guy, to be really, really strong and hang out with tough guys and reassert his power and strength. And that kept him away from the scary feelings of, of vulnerability where somebody else might have tremendous doubts of themselves and, and guilt even in relation to perpetrators. And so, so yes, I think that the takeaway there is not so much which are men and which are women, but rather that there are different ways to cope with the, the stress and pain of carrying traumatic experiences. Right. Length and frequency of sessions, special techniques and homework can all be optimized for effectiveness in the therapy room. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, the length of sessions? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it, it helps to, to gain some experience in this area, to try some different things out. And what I found is that for the most part, once a week is kind of the typical f- frequency of therapy and the 45 or 50 minute session. And that's Good enough with the average person to keep up a sense of rhythm 
so that one session leads to the next, leads to the next, and there's, and there's a focus and a movement along those. If it's less frequent than that, it's a little harder and unusual for serious therapy to happen, but it can, especially depending on the quality of the relationship. If it's a strong relationship, that makes that more doable. When the frequency goes up from once a week to twice a week or more, then the emphasis is more on the relationship and what goes on there rather than what goes on with the outside world. Does it change things? Uh, yes and no. For the most part, the, the lower frequency therapy still deals with the same issues, but they're maybe happening out there in the world rather than in the therapy room, or at least as much out in the world. Whereas if it's a more intensive thing, then they tend to happen in the therapy room. And especially with maybe more, more subtle things like uh, we'll talk later as we get into different kinds of pathology, what I call guilty quests are things that tend to be very hidden and very subtle. And those take longer and tend to come out within the, uh, within the relationship itself. And, and one exception I mentioned is that anybody who happens to be working with dissociative identity clients they they tend to have a lot of personalities and so there's there's a lot of business that needs to be transacted and my experience is that longer sessions are really optimal with that population uh, they can get used to short sessions and they'll deal with it but it's not it's not the most the easiest or the best way to work with them so by longer session do you mean 60 minutes or that more? kind of 60 minutes or a double session that kind of thing yeah Couples also, you know, again, are, are you've got more people involved. And so 45 minutes is really too short to do a good job with a couple. That's been my experience. Yes. I, my experience has also has been that as well, especially when practicing EMDR mm -hmm. and uh, with my PTSD patients, 45, 50 minutes is just, it doesn't feel safe. And my mm -hmm. patients, uh, could tend to leave my office in a disorganized state, which I don't right. want. Right. Really they don't want that. That's right. No. So we work in double sessions. Yeah. So then what about structure? Uh, you talk about the many techniques in therapy that go beyond talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, EMDR being one of those empty chair exercises, um, body movement, visualization, rating scales, you know, homework, verbal exercises. So there are lots of things that, that people bring into therapy. And for me, I think that that good old conversation is kind of the gold standard, the, the benchmark. And if a structured intervention is going to work better, then great, do it. And some people seem to take to that. They seem to be more comfortable with it and they like it. But I think the more structure you bring into the therapy sessions, the more kind of overhead it, it, it requires and, and it can be distracting and complicate things. But, you know, you, you use EMDR. Do you want to talk about your experience with that? I find that EMDR is a remarkable protocol and I don't systematically use it with every patient because it can be very activating. And so depending upon the degree of their PTSD, and I use it judiciously, mm -hmm. but it basically has the effect of parting the, the curtains of defenses, of psychological mm -hmm. defenses, and getting straight to the matter at hand, to the cause of the suffering. And yet it is done 
at the rhythm of the patient. Mm -hmm. So I'm not pushing. Mm -hmm. And we follow, the patient follows the stream of her consciousness mm -hmm. and is stimulated while doing so for intervals of maybe 20 seconds long, not much more than that. And then does access uh, the, the cause of the suffering and all of the beliefs around it and is strangely able to get enough distance from the suffering Mm -hmm. to be able to objectify it, mm -hmm. look at it objectively, and to realize that, for instance, the guilt that she might be carrying for having been raped mm -hmm. is in fact not hers, mm -hmm. but belongs squarely to the perpetrator. Right. And so, and that has the effect of completely altering the beliefs about herself mm -hmm. before the session were ecologically invalid. Mm -hmm. And then once that is recognized, we go to uh, installing a more ecologically valid belief mm -hmm. is that maybe if she was raped at 14 years old, she, she is not guilty. She did not cause this to happen, mm -hmm. but rather she was powerless at the time and no longer is now. Yeah. So, so that's a kind of, a marvelous kind of structure that's a very natural one that that kind of it both intensifies and it also breaks up the work into little chunks so that it's not so threatening yes yeah and and i think other kinds are a little bit like rating scales and things like that might be more disruptive of the the ongoing relationship and the the flow of the of the sessions but some people really are, are more comfortable with, with something that, that they can, that's more concrete that they can do. Like I can get out my pencil and, and check off the rating scale or something like that. So I think it's often a question of the, of the client's style that's going to determine and, and the therapist's style and comfort level as well. Because some therapists are much more comfortable with that kind of thing and some not. I, I tend to put EMDR in a, in a kind of special category as, as an alternative way to work with people who've experienced trauma that's both structured and unstructured, natural and intensifying, and also helps to manage intense uh, events. Yes, and what will often determine whether EMDR is an appropriate protocol to use in therapy is the level of the patient's regulation. Mm -hmm. Right, so that's really something that we have to be attuned to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So one thing that, that uh, I know CPT likes to use a lot is homework and incorporating homework as in, in the structure of the therapy. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah. So I, I think homework, I, I tend not to do very much of it, but I think I, I also believe in it to a certain extent that people sometimes really crave that and it gives them something concrete to carry with them as they as they leave the session and spend the rest of their life outside the session, it's a way to, to keep your client focused and, and on track. Uh, it's a way, especially when there's behavior change that might be involved to help them stay accountable and monitor their ongoing efforts. And it's a way of, of kind of marking milestones of progress sometimes. And if a person has a, has a specific task that they're committed to, uh, to accomplishing, Sometimes I suggest that they enlist other people, their family members or, or people that they have relationships with 
in in their effort to make this go through this change process, whatever it is. And so when you have an outside rooting section, that helps a lot too. So so I think it's a it's it's a judgment call when that's going to be an enhancement. And again, some some therapists are more comfortable with that and and maybe uh, more trained in in using different kinds of homework. But I think that you know psychodynamic therapy, just talk therapy has tended to de-emphasize behavior change, to discount how important it is for clients to try out different behaviors, especially because in our culture, in our century, behavior is one of the most important ways that people defend themselves, that people ward off vulnerability. And so it may be way more important than in the Victorian era when control was the word, uh, it, it may be an, a more important way for people to let go of defenses is, is through behavior change. Right. Yeah, and it, it also allows us to, to create a concrete plan for what to change mm-hmm. and how in the behavior and also to monitor ongoing efforts. Mm-hmm. Finally, frame as a variable. Tell us about that. So I think we need to be aware of, you know, as therapists, we tend to have a style and, and maybe the frame is a little different with different clients. Maybe you have different habits. But the most important thing is that once people realize that this is, this is sort of this, the way you work, then if there's a change in that, that's going to have meaning and that's going to be interpreted and can be a way to explore new things that wouldn't have come up otherwise and a way to arrive at a new understanding. So it's very important to be aware of the impact of anything that's a variation from the from the frame, and you know maybe maybe we're going to make adjustments, and we have to ask ourselves: Is there countertransference involved in that? You know, maybe you're looser with your with your time with one person compared to another person, and so I think it's something to be aware of, sometimes to to talk about and to explore, and sometimes an area where there, there are adjustments that, that might be uh, made to fit with a certain client with their style and with their needs at the time. And it might be helpful to communicate the nature of the frame to the client and to talk about it and, and, and get some feedback from the client to make sure that the inner child of the client kind of agrees with with the frame that it that it's well adapted to mm-hmm. that client's needs. Right. I, I would just have one caveat on that 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 early career beginning therapists want to make a big speech with their client about about things like that right at the beginning. And I think those big speeches go in one ear and come out the other. And and the best way we show pa- patients how to how to be how to be clients, how to be patients is by doing, is by the experience. But later on, it may very well be a good idea to, to talk about it and, and what it means and, and how we're doing it. So avoid the liability of too much talk. <laughs> of too much talk and big explanations, especially at the beginning. Okay. All right. So this concludes today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Well, just to say that this concludes 
part two of the book, which is sort of a brief how to conduct therapy in a generic way without leaning towards one orientation or another. And with the next podcast, we're going to, to start the final part three, where we're going to go through a catalog of different kinds of entrenched dysfunctional patterns that we treat in psychotherapy. And that's very important because it's really going to help our, our, our listeners to make sense of, of what kind of problem they're dealing with and how best to approach those problems. And this is very different from the diagnostic manual that gives you sort of collections of symptoms. This is really about how, um, how people tend to avoid uncomfortable affects and the things that they do in order to accomplish that. Great. Something to look forward to. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Okay, bye. Bye.